Stay tuned for The Turning Point. sure I know how it feels to be free. <clears throat> I may never know how it feels to be free, but um, I know I know how I feel right now. Um, scared out of my goddamn wits. Um, think of the scariest thing that ever happened to you or any frightening thing that ever happened to you. Like the, <clears throat> the day that you uh, stood in front of uh, somebody to get married. Uh, the day that you went for your first job interview, the day you, the first day on a new job, the first day at college, uh, the time that your car went into a skid uh, and you were headed over an embankment. Just, <laughs> do I exaggerate? Yes, usually. But 
I have not been on the air as uh, if this show actually makes it onto the air. This is a kind of a test run today. Uh, I have not been on the air for over six months, and uh, there are reasons for it. One of which you can hear almost immediately is <clears throat> my voice, which is not in good shape. And um, there are reasons for that which I will mention uh, as I go along, if I'm able to go along that far. Um, when you've been away for so long, uh, aside from being terrified, I have the, the worst case of stage fright I've ever had in my life. I always had stage fright. Uh, every time I've ever been on the radio, I had stage fright, even though I've done thousands of radio shows. Um, I was always, uh, at, at the very least, nervous before every single show. And sometimes just uh, terrified before um, shows that were live. I did used to do live shows. There's nothing scarier than doing a live show. I mean, radio still makes you nervous to, to talk into the radio. When I first started talking in radio, I was nervous because I had never done it before. This was like 35 years ago. But um, what I wasn't nervous about was because I didn't really think anybody was really listening to me. I mean, it was surreal. I was sitting in front of a microphone in a studio. There was nobody else there but me. Um, this is a place where there was no engineers but yourself, a nonprofit radio station, BAI. And so I didn't really believe for the first several weeks or even a couple of months that anybody was actually listening um, until I started to get um, phone calls and letters from people. This is, uh, yes, back in the day before these wonderful, wonderful machines we have that have actually changed and saved our lives and made them so much better than they used to be. Don't we all agree on that? I don't, but that more, more about that later. <laughs> of course, the irony is no matter how, what's that word for it? No matter how much of a Luddite I am, no how, I don't know where that comes from. No matter how much I'm, um, I'm hateful about, uh, uh, about so many uh, technical improvements, quote-unquote, especially one that I'm still dealing with right now, Windows 7. Let's see the magic words, Windows 7, and um, I feel like the devil pops up. But that's for a little bit. Uh, that's for another time. Uh, back in the day, yes, you knew uh, that people were uh, paying attention to you because people wrote letters. You would come into the... And so I would talk into the microphone, and I wasn't really, no, I just wasn't really sure. So it takes some of the nervousness out of it, because you don't know if anybody's really listening. You could be talking to yourself, which I had spent most of my life and still do, uh, you know, uh, pursuing that kind of uh, behavior. But here I am talking into the microphone, and people were used to calling me, calling up the radio station. So they called up, and then I knew they were listening. Uh, I thought maybe they were calling up uh, you know, to order a pizza or calling up some other place, but actually they were listening to me and responding to things I said. So, <laughs> so of course, the more I knew people were listening to me, then the more nervous I got, and I sort of stayed permanently nervous. Uh, I don't know. It could be anywhere from 50 people. It could be 50,000, you know, wh however many at one point uh, or uh, the different radio stations I was on were listening to me. Uh, so stage fright. And I have a massive case of it right now. Um, I've been off the, in 35 years on the air. I've been off the air due to various illnesses uh, of various sorts for sometimes two weeks or even three weeks. But I have never been off for six months. So uh, I'm getting the usual uh, 
stuff from people like, you know, it's just don't, Mike, it's just like riding a bicycle. No big deal. And uh, don't worry about it. No, it's not just like riding a bicycle. <laughs> it's like uh, what happened to me was like almost getting killed in a motorcycle accident and then waiting six months and uh, then heading out on the highway again without even thinking about it. So, um, so I've been away for six months. And when I was in school um, 5,000 years ago, uh, when I was in elementary school, you needed an absence note. Maybe it was junior high school, too. You needed an absence note. If you were out sick, you had to get a doctor's note or a note from your mommy or your daddy um, saying, you know, what was wrong with you and explaining why you were out. So providing I have the voice to do it um, and providing I have the guts to do it, I'm going to tell you what happened to me and why I haven't been on the radio for the last six months. Um, the last show I did was December 7th. <laughs> it seems appropriate. Uh, Pearl Harbor Day, December 7th. The last show I did was on Sirius, um, Sirius XM radio. And two days before that, I did a show here on PRN. So I guess that's the 5th. I'm walking along in the, it's, it's I, don't, I, I keep saying this, I know, but it's, it's hard for me to even talk about this because it's not like something that happened a long time ago. I used to tell stories when I was on BAI about stuff that happened um, many, many years ago. And, uh, you know, I had sort of come, made my peace with it, more or less, I thought. So I was able to talk about, you know how, if, if you want to explain something uh, really uh, traumatic that happened in your life, you can... You can recall it uh, only after many years, and sometimes you can't hardly even talk about it until many years or 10 years or 20 years have gone by. And so the, the events of my life, some of which were very extreme and disturbing and odd, uh, when I was talking on the radio on BAI originally, when I first started on the air, when I was about 35, um, there, no, I, was, I was about 33, 34 years old, uh, a lot of those things had happened, you know, 10 years, 20 years uh, in the past. But one of the reasons it's difficult to talk about where I've been is because I'm still there, sort of. It's only been six months, and I'm in, still in the middle of a lot of things. So I've never actually talked about stuff so much that is traumatic or difficult that um, is so recent. Anyhow, the last show I did was December 7th. It was a Saturday night. And as my wife and I usually did, I was taking a walk in Riverside Park. We were taking a walk in Riverside Park. And um, December 8th, about 10 in the morning, I'm walking along, talking to her, and talking too much, as I usually did, in my kind of like urgent sort of um, way that maybe a lot of you are used to. If you're listening to me for many years or even on, uh, on PRN for the first time, a certain kind of urgency to the way I talk, um, as if uh, I can't even take a breath and that every minute is uh, I have to fill with a thousand words. This is something that I've done off and on most of the years I was on the air. And I was doing it more and more, actually, without understanding why. And so, But, but I was doing it in my uh, personal life as much as I had a personal life. Um, can I distinguish between my personal life and my life on the air? Not too much because it's all the same to me. I'm walking along in Riverside Park about 10 in the morning, and boom, I got uh, a heart attack. 
Uh, nothing particularly wrong with my heart up until then. You know, I get regular checkups, and since I needed to see a doctor at least once a week my whole life to feel reassured about something, uh, more than regular checkups. Nothing wrong with my heart that I knew of, and um, walking along, talking, and boom, it's like somebody uh, stuck a knife in my chest or and then reached in and tried to rip out my heart, and my legs turned to rubber, and I fell down, and I knew right away what it was, uh, told my wife, get help. And that was about all I could say after that. It was a terrifying experience. So she flagged down somebody. We didn't. We don't carry cell phones around. She flagged down somebody with a cell phone, and um, uh, somebody called St. Luke's Hospital, which is about <clears throat> about six blocks from where this happened in Riverside Park, up on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. And St. Luke's Hospital is gigantic um, medical center, which is no more than, um, you know, like I say, six, ten blocks away from where I live right now and pretty close to this place. The ambulance shows up. I am in outer space at this point, not in any particular pain, but in, you know, just already sort of fading fast and uh, the oxygen on top of me, all kinds of things attached to me in the ambulance. Uh, I am aware of my wife crying and panicking. Um, I show up in the hospital. I must have passed out or something. And I show up in the hospital, and I'm lying down there. And, uh, oh, um, Mr. Engineer, let me ask you a question, since I haven't done this in six months. If you were around, let me, uh, I want to ask you something, because it's a question of timing. How much time do I have left in the show now? Because I usually measure time pretty accurately, but I haven't done it in a while. 40 minutes, okay. So that would be um, 80 minutes after 10 or 20 minutes after 11. <clears throat> so, uh, no, wait a minute. That clock's completely wrong. <laughs> That's okay. I have to get used to the world again. The fact that the clock is uh, is way off is uh, beside the point. All right, so I'm in the hospital, and I and I sort of wake up from maybe some dropped off or something. And the doctor is standing over me, woman, uh, and my wife is standing next to her, and he says, she says, um, Mr. Fader, you have had um, <clears throat> an aneurysm, and your aorta has uh, torn apart. Basically, my aorta exploded, like there was a little time bomb in it. Do you remember, um, did you ever see Escape from New York, where they plant that, um, that little... Um, Metal uh, in Escape from New York in this movie is kind of a science fiction fantasy movie. They plant a little uh, metal pellet in uh, in somebody, and it's time to go off and explode in his bloodstream. Well, something sort of exploded in my aorta and tore it right open. So she explains to me what happened. She said, "If you don't have surgery immediately, you will die." And I. I'm hesitating now because I have, uh, I have to be honest about these things, right? Or else, what's the point? I have always had one foot in the other world. And I have had a very difficult life. Um, very difficult. And anybody who's listened to me for a long time knows what the difficulties were and, um, 
has uh, or has read any of my books uh, knows what the difficulties were. And they were extreme. And they were not something that happened a long time ago. And, uh, you know, I just constantly am bedeviled by it. But things that happen routinely every several years, extreme things that happen in my life, tough things, uh, to put it mildly. So she said to me, if we don't operate immediately, you'll die. And I confess, I hesitated for a second, thinking to myself, you know, I'm almost 70 years old. And I didn't really have any idea, you know, I, you know what was going to happen to me or what could happen to me if they operated. Or, you know, they didn't tell me at the moment, by the way, that I had a 50-50 chance at best of surviving this operation. Um. And my wife was standing there. Now, I don't want to, be, like I said, I don't want to be dishonest. Sometimes I think to myself after what I've been through the last six months and what I'm still going through, um, that if she wasn't there, if I didn't feel, if I didn't see her face, her beautiful face looking at me in anguish, I might have said to this woman, no thanks. <laughs> now, I know this is the Progressive Radio Network, and I know that Gary... God bless him, is, uh, is uh, you know, absolutely, he's essential on the subject of uh, positive thinking. But maybe he keeps me around or, <laughs> or asks me to do a show or show on his shows on his station just as a kind of a balance to all the positivity. Because um, negative thinking, unfortunately for me, is my default mode of thinking. And... Um, uh, so, you know, I had uh, always in my life been through experiences where I felt like life really wasn't worth the trouble. And if I was going to go through at my age yet another gigantic struggle, it occurred to me lying there. And, she's, you know, she's looking at me urgently, this doctor, you know, seconds. You've got to be operated right now. We're going to take you straight to the operating room. Why was she asking me? I guess they need your permission, right? I mean, you would have thought. Maybe they would ask my wife, and, or they would have just done it, assuming that most people, of course, they want to live. Save my life. Save my life. Well, she didn't really know who she was dealing with. But anyway, I look at my wife, and I say to myself, well, yes, go ahead. Go ahead and operate. And uh, I had a brief thought in my mind. Well, all right, so they operate. I don't know what that means. You know, maybe they... Uh, Maybe it's like an hour or two, or maybe it's a big operation. Maybe it's four hours. Uh, I didn't really understand what she told me happened to me. You know, she just said something exploded or something tore open. And I said, yeah, go ahead and operate. Um, I didn't know what the recuperation would be like, what the hospital experience would be like, what the operation would be like, what my body would be like afterwards, what my mind would be like afterwards. You know, I somehow had a fleeting thought that... Okay, I need an operation. Uh, it'll be tough. Uh, I'll get over it. I'll come home maybe a few weeks. I'll take some painkillers, which I always like to make me high, you know, and, and relieve me of my usual angst. Uh, and then I'll be okay, and then I'll go back to my life. No, 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 no. <laughs> now, if you don't want to hear graphic descriptions of... Um, of uh, now, I'm not going to get into it in great detail, but uh, if you don't want to hear this kind of graphic stuff, then you should tune away and rejoin us uh, whenever the next program is uh, and whatever the next program is. Uh, I have been out for so long, I don't remember exactly what it is. Um, but 
So they took me and they operated on me. And uh, what they do, what they did was open heart surgery. What they do is they crack you open like a lobster, to be blunt and vulgar about it. And they just, I don't know, I don't want to even know. I don't even, I, I don't want to think about it. But they take some machinery, some saws, and some heavy equipment, and they smack you open the same way you would crack open a lobster. And... Um, that means that they go straight through your ribs and they push them, stretch them all the way back in an abnormal way. It goes straight to where your heart is. They stick a heart lung, stick you on a heart lung machine because you can't breathe for yourself and your heart can't pump for itself while they're operating on you. So when you're artificially hooked up and um, they operate on you and you have a 50-50 chance at best. And so I don't know this. I just assume I'd be operated on and uh, then I'd be better. But I didn't know that I could easy, just as easily have died. And later on, I find out, of course, from my kids uh, who came in from, you know, other places in the country where they live, as soon as they found out, and from my wife, that for three days I was in a coma and teetering on uh, the 50-50 line, on the 50-yard line there. Um, and that uh, the anguish that they went through is something I can't even imagine. Uh, my wife won't even talk about it now because it makes her just start to shake and cry. Uh, and my kids uh, will talk about it. They're more um, practical and cold-blooded, but they still don't even feel like talking about it. So there I finally, next thing I know, I wake up. I'm in the uh, ICU, the special uh, cardiac ICU. You know, my I have something to drink there? It's not... Uh, it's all natural, you know. It's not. Uh, it's not an alcoholic. It's just water. It's not gonna hurt anybody. Ah, yes. So, um, I'm in the hospital and I wake up and I survive. I'm alive and in astounding pain. I cannot move in any direction. Take a breath. Uh, coughing every time I cough or every time I breathe it's like knives inside me and um, uh, I'm hooked up to about 30 different machines um, it's just astounding and lying flat on my back there for two weeks in this uh, ICU and um, <clears throat> sometimes my um, blood pressure dipped taking God knows how many pills they wake you up every two hours you don't ever get any sleep because the bed is so uncomfortable that you're in terrible pain and anguish from not being able to turn over or uh, not being able to relieve the position you're in. You can't get up until after about a week, and even then you can only sort of totter over to uh, the toilet in the room. Uh, an astounding experience. Already I'm regretting, sorry to say, but I'm regretting the fact that I said, yes, go ahead and operate. Because uh, they explained to me what they had to, what they did afterwards, <laughs> and the pain was amazing. You know, for which they give you a tremendous amount of painkillers. Um, two weeks go by, and they send me home. With um, now, I can't walk. I can't walk. I lost 12 pounds in two weeks lying in 12 pounds, and I don't weigh a whole lot to begin with. Lying in the um, uh, in the hospital uh, bed. I lost almost 10% of my weight. And um, uh, they send me home finally. Uh, you know, I have to practice walking. I have to practice. Uh, I couldn't walk more than about 20 feet, then 30 feet, then 40 feet with the IV, you know, up and down the hospital corridor. 
finally they send me home with all these pills and um, <clears throat> uh, and in the course of having this operation they and now I can tell you sort of uh, how it works in terms of uh, why my voice sounds so raspy uh, and occasionally uh, sort of my throat close, uh, closes up is the heart-lung machine. They stuck a tube in me for eight hours I was operating on. Eight straight hours. They had a tube down my throat. And um, I have uh, permanent, uh, some permanent damage from the tube, but not necessarily from the tube. During the course of doing what they had to do, their job was to fix my heart. During the course of doing that, they caused about three or four other serious health problems, which I'm still dealing with, and sort of set off a couple which had been dormant for a while that I'm dealing with, all of which involved very heavy medication with very heavy side effects. And uh, just because God loves me so much, they snipped one of my vocal cords during the course of, uh, of uh, saving my life. One of your vocal cords, by the way, I could tell you, I forget which one, the left vocal cord. Um, go ahead, grab yourself around the throat, see if you can find your left vocal cord. I don't know if you can. It's looped around your heart. I don't know why, but I think it's just a special gift uh, among many special gifts I've been given in my life. But your left vocal cord, for some bizarre reason, is looped around your heart. So in the course of operating on my heart, they snipped it. And my voice will probably never be the same. I don't even know if I could continue doing radio shows. I certainly hope I can. I mean, uh, that's why I'm here today talking and so here I am with all these pills, uh, still in a lot of pain, can hardly move around, can hardly walk. I'm going to have to have uh, weeks and weeks and weeks of physical therapy. I'm taking, uh, I'm dizzy and out of it and can't see straight from all the medicine I'm taking, all the heart medicine, the blood pressure medicine, the, uh, the pulse medicine, and um, the painkillers. Completely out of it. Um, and I couldn't talk. I couldn't talk. And what do I do my whole life? What, what has defined me? What has uh, made me feel realer and made me feel like I was actually even helping people? I mean, what are we here for anyhow? I mean, why, why was my heart beating? Why is your heart beating? Why? So that you can have a, million, a billion dollars uh, from a hedge fund? So that you can do the giant slalom at the Olympics? I suppose, but... Why all our hearts are beating, it seems to me, and why my almost ceased and it was a terrible thing or would have been a terrible thing, is because while we're alive and our hearts are beating and we're still alive, we are here to help other people, which I deeply believe. And I believe that more now than I ever did. You can bet I've had a lot of time and still do to review my life in the last several months of doing virtually nothing. Um... This is the first time I've actually done anything, um, I don't know what to say, expansive or uh, to connect with other people in almost, in more than six months. So it's a strange experience. Um, give me a, can I get another time check there, uh, Mr. Engineer? And then we got down to around 30 minutes or half an hour or something. What do I got? 28 minutes? Really? Not 27 minutes. All right, I wasted time. Okay, thank you very much. Okay. So, um, let's see. 27 minutes. All right. Okay. Um, and uh, 
and I'm thinking to myself here, you know, I've got to, I've taken all these pills. I'm uh, now. One thing that happened to me was uh, I'm terribly superstitious. I'm not religious, but I'm superstitious in a primitive childlike way. <clears throat> uh, one reason I feel like I got this heart attack, among many others, was, you know, aside from childhood feelings of being punished for being so evil, which, uh, by the way, came up again and has come up again in my in my brain, which is another part of uh, something that's kept me down for the last few months, is psychological demons popping up again. You sit around doing nothing for six months. Uh, I'm the kind of person that feels like every single day, if they don't do something to justify their existence, uh, they shouldn't exist because uh, they are essentially um, not a good person. That's putting it mildly. That's the way I was brought up. That's the way I was informed, you know, that I was an evil person responsible for the uh, destruction and murder of various other people. So um, I had to keep justifying myself my whole life, constantly, in a desperate manner. And um, and yet, the last couple of years before I had this uh, heart, now they call it an event, <laughs> there's all kinds of euphemisms for this. It, was a, it's not, it wasn't a heart attack, it was a heart event. So I had an event, you know, like you had, uh, like maybe... Uh, you know, uh, you went to uh, you had a you had a party to celebrate the fact that uh, your team won the Super Bowl. It was an event, <laughs> so I had a heart event. And um, three days before I had this heart event, uh, for a couple of years before that, in this turbulent, difficult life I had of climbing many difficult physical and psychological um, mountains over and over again. Uh, for almost 70 years, the last couple of years of my life <clears throat> were actually quite good. I was doing very, very well uh, for me. Uh, I was out taking pictures all over the city. I found this hobby that I love, taking pictures with a real camera. And um, I was um, doing three radio shows, and a lot of people, and I was doing good radio shows. People were listening to me. I was doing good in the world. Uh, I was entertaining people, making people laugh, talking about what I considered to be important things, and doing political shows, too, um, about uh, the injustices of the world and people who were trying to fight that and pointing them out and, you know, doing very well. And perhaps more important, as I mentioned before, is why one's heart beats, was coming closer to other people. I've always been a kind of an isolated uh, unsocial type of person and there are reasons for that uh, many of which people are familiar with if they've listened to me before but uh, talk about um, an isolated strange uh, crazy childhood that's uh, that's putting it mildly so uh, I've always had trouble with other people and yet in the last couple of years in my old age through hard work and some good therapy, um, finally, after seeing, I don't know, three quarters of uh, a dozen therapists, um, I was getting closer to people. I was beginning to understand sort of what love is after all that time. Not only what it meant, but that I could receive it, that I deserved to receive it, and that it was something that I should give other people, the people wanted it from me and needed it from me. My kids, my wife, my friends, uh, people, I was just sort of finally relaxed. And I, about three days before this happened to me, I remember saying to my therapist, I was talking to her, and I said, you know, I've never been happier in my life. Oh, man. 
So, now, if you're not superstitious, you don't have to worry about it. You can say what you like. But that was one thing I thought I would never say out loud because every time it seemed to me, and it seems to me, that every time anything ever really good happened to me or good happens to me, or I feel good even slightly about something and I acknowledge it to my, even inside my own head, or certainly if I say it out loud and say, hmm, I'm having a good time, boom, I'm going to get myself kicked as hard as possible. The, 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 uh, the anvil will come down on my head. And it's happened to me many times before, so I don't really trust that kind of thing. And yet, there I was, feeling very good, being closer to people, uh, feeling more grown up than I ever had before. And for somebody who was a perpetual child, that was an achievement. Um, understanding, like as I say, what, what actually love might mean between two grown people. Being a good parent to my kids, my grown kids, but still being helpful to them, being there for them. Uh, making jokes for with people. Uh, I was always a good listener when I was feeling good, but I was doing even better than that this time. I was. Uh, people were telling me their problems. Uh, people relied on me. People looked up to me. Um, and so I say, you know, I've never felt better in my life. Well, three days later, bazoom, you know, my aorta decides to uh, explode. However... Um, uh, even though I say I was doing very well, now that I look back on it, there was a sense of desperation still at the same time. The way I was talking to my wife when I was walking with her in the park that day, right before I, you know, the very second before I got the heart attack, I noticed for the last several months before, uh, and on the air especially, um, I don't know if there's something that uh, regular listeners noticed, there was... Uh, See, I have a way of talking which is kind of nonstop, continuous, which is very unusual on the radio. Of course, people, um, <clears throat> in fact, I think I'm going to have a little bit more um, tea here to help my froggy voice. You don't mind, do you? I just have to press this and I pour it like that. It's a thermos of throat coat tea. Do you ever drink throat coat tea? It's good stuff. So, um, but, I, uh, but I'm thinking back on it now. Even though I say I was feeling really good for all that time, um, and maybe better than I ever had in my life, uh, there was a certain desperation now that I realize, a certain grasping desperateness to my feelings. Uh, I was talking so fast and so urgently. And I remember thinking this, and I remember telling my wife back in November, like a month before this happened, that one more tea. Um, <clears throat> that I was feeling kind of desperate. That there was something uh, breathless about the way I was talking, as if I somehow sensed that um, that I had to urgently get every word and every feeling out that I had, because uh, it, it was almost like you know that old phrase that he's spending money like it was going out of style. I had a feeling like I was going out of style, or you know maybe. Who knows, this mind-body connection, maybe uh, my brain or my uh, consciousness or something just below my consciousness was aware of the fact that my aorta uh, was programmed to go off like the 4th of July on December 8th. That's a funny mixture of things. Uh, but, uh, you know, like an ammunition dump on, the, uh, on December 8th. 
anyhow, I was desperate. I was more and more desperate all the time. And I think part of that had to do with a certain kind of mortality. Um, that I was beginning to feel uh, old. You know, I, was, I had various ailments like arthritis, and I was having trouble with this, and I was having trouble with that, and there were various other ailments which got exacerbated by this heart surgery that, you know, they were not, they were, <laughs> they were, they were happening to me. And various pains, I was becoming uh, unable to do certain things. You know, I was getting older. And uh, mortality was seeming to loom, even though I wasn't consciously aware of it. I was trying to avoid the knowledge of it, which is something a lot of people do, naturally, just to survive. You don't want to walk around thinking all the time that, the you know, Edgar Allan Poe's raven is, you know, staring you right in the face, although I've done that. But there was a certain desperateness, all right? And, and on the radio, I was talking like this all the time, and every minute, and I, and I wouldn't take a breath, and I was talking that way in person to people, too, and feeling more and more tired all the time, like worn out by a certain kind of <clears throat> over-adrenaline desperation. Um, and uh, I felt like... I had to explain myself as if I was going to appear before the big judge in the big court. And uh, I felt there was a, a certain necessity to explain myself. And um, maybe a feeling that I had been misunderstood all my life and all this desperate talking um, would finally explain me and justify me to people. Can we get uh, that uh, tune that I had, number two there? Baby, you understand me now If sometimes you see that I'm mad Don't you know no one alive can always be an angel When everything goes wrong you see some bad But I'm just a soul whose intentions are Just a soul whose intentions are 
Something, something I always felt that was um, that was desperate in me is to be understood. I mean, why would somebody get on the radio for almost 35 years and talk at such a clip, uh, almost without ceasing, about um, what they think, what they see, how they feel, what their life has been like, what uh, what their experiences is are about with other people, with children, with wives, with uh, death, with life, with jobs. Um, and why, why constantly explain yourself this way? Why feel, what is the drive? What is the need to do that? Well, one reason I did it was, um, as I said before, is that I found out by doing this that I was just human like everybody else. Isn't that what you just said in that song? I was just human like everybody else. Only most people don't get the opportunity to say these things. Certainly they don't say them in public, and mostly that's because most people don't listen to other people. And so I was saying things that were sometimes very extreme or poignant or sad or strange or even ecstatic. And I tur it turned out that there thousands, even tens of thousands of people, in, uh, and over the decades, hundreds of thousands of people, uh, shared these experiences, and in fact, that most people feel these things on some kind of continuum. So, uh, by me talking about these things in my in my desperate effort to be understood and to justify myself, I found myself actually helping other people. So that was the main reason, and would continue to be as long as I'm on the radio. The main reason why I would uh, do a show like this. I mean, there are political shows that I might do again, or I might not. I don't know. I'm a little less interested in, since I almost, uh, my life almost ended in one second, and uh, I've had six months to review my life now. I'm a little less interested in the way that the world is committing suicide and blowing itself up, and I'm uh, going maybe to leave that to another generation. I don't know. I really don't know. I not I don't read the paper as much as I used to, and when I do, I just get angry in some old, you know, familiar way, uh, which is a fruitless kind of anger. I mean, I see the world like a ship headed straight for the rocks, and uh, most people not really either knowing it or caring to avoid it. But uh, I know there's a struggle out there, but maybe it's for younger people. I don't know. I haven't made up my mind about that. But anyhow, so... Six months go by, and what am I doing? I'm doing rehab, physical rehab. My heart's, uh, you know, in the best shape it could possibly be. I mean, it could check out any second, and I take all kinds of medicines for my heart. Um, and I'm doing rehab, uh, but as I say, the, the heart surgery, which was so extreme, exacerbated all kinds of other things and created health troubles that are uh, still with me for which I have to uh, get other surgery down the line if I could possibly bring myself to do it. <clears throat> and uh, so created new problems and uh, exacerbated old ones for which I take all kinds of pills. And inevitably, of course, what happened was since I was doing nothing, like Bob Dylan says, too much nothing makes a fellow mean, I became depressed. This invasion of my body this uh, this somebody reaching inside me and basically trying to rip my heart out was so and is so shocking. And so it seems to me so unfair to use a childish word um, that I have not gotten over it. The shock 
and the grief of it is something I'm only just beginning to feel. And I've never reacted too well to adversity, but this <laughs> this is serious adversity. So what happened over the last um, several months is that I basically have not been able to do much. I haven't been back on the radio, some of that out of fear, um, and some of it not being able to talk too well. And I became depressed, and I've been depressed. I've been in psychiatric hospitals uh Several times before in my life, I've been uh, abysmally depressed before, much of which I've talked about over the years. And uh, this heart event, this uh, splitting apart of the center of me, this intrusion by people into the center of me, this cracking open of me, um, uh, has, has set all my dials back to zero. <clears throat> now, in the old days, like I say, I used to talk about things that happened to me once upon a time. I'm talking about right now. All, all of my defenses are back up again. All my obsessions, all my fears, all my depression back up in the midst of a major depression. And trying to battle back out of it, to survive each day from it. And one thing to do uh, is to help other people, uh, which I have not been able to do. Radio being the main way that I've ever helped other people uh, and know for sure that I have and can only hope that uh, maybe something I say today uh, will, at least people will feel that something is familiar, something about this. But like I say, uh, you know, all my dials get set back to zero. All the worst sorts of fears and uh, envies and childish hatreds and everything that I had worked so hard climbed so many different mountains in my life same mountain over and over again. So here I am approaching 70 and thinking to myself, another climb? Really? <laughs> why, why don't I just lay down and let the snow cover me this time? Because when I was 20, it happened. When I was thir 35, when I was 46, when I was 51, you know, some event, some incident into the depths and then climbing back up, which takes years each time. And it will take years again, and maybe not as long as time, I hope. Um, so the, all the old demons come back up. And I thought I had them beat. I was doing well. I was doing well. But I should, of all people, know better, and yet I didn't. You don't beat them. You do not beat your demons. You don't extinguish your devils. You cannot do that. You cannot do that. You can only come to terms with them. You can only make peace with them. You can only let them go away from you or melt away. You cannot hit them over the head. You can't wrestle with them because you lose. And you should never think, <clears throat> and I don't want to generalize my experience to, for everybody else, but maybe there is some uh, truth to it for other people. Uh, mortality is always with us. And the older you get, obviously, the more you feel it. And you see people when you're older, um, like I say, I'm almost 70 now. You see people when you're older, you know, uh, your friends, certainly your parents uh, have died or are, if they're very old, going through the last stages of their life. Uh, you see friends and you hear of colleagues in their 60s, 70s, maybe some in their 80s, you know, are... You see them walking on the street, they're pale, uh, you hear so-and-so is no longer with us, and you get a sense of your mortality. But I, I never, in addition to thinking that I had all my old psychological demons beat, 
you know, that they would never bother me again, was part of the general superficiality of the way that I approach life. What I'm understanding in the last six months, and what I'm dealing with right now, is that I have always lived a very superficial life. For all my talk about these profound issues, for all my talk about, uh, you know, what I think is the truth and the way people should act, for all my assumptions about life, I've understood now that I've always been very self-involved and that I've always approached life in a superficial way that I never really understood, and I'm still working on understanding even now as I'm talking to you, about the essential ebb and flow of life, that life is full of suffering. I'm a kind of person that when they feel bad, they think they're always going to feel bad forever and will never get better. An extreme person. And when they feel good, they think that they're going to feel good forever. Imagine a person who's 68, 69 years old, feeling that life is pretty good, health is not too terrible, doing better at things all the time, uh, finally enjoying their life, finally not feeling guilty about being alive at all, uh, not feeling like they had to justify themselves, not shaking with uh, nervousness and fear all the time, expansive, taking advantage of their talents. Imagine a person like that. So I thought that this was going to go on forever. Imagine how foolish and childish and silly that was. I was skating over the very top edge of life without really understanding what it was. And there's plenty of reasons for that. Um, <clears throat> my life was not one that was instructive in uh, the ebb and flow of life. I had an extreme, strange life in which people were removed from me overnight, instantaneously, so I didn't get to watch them get old and die, my parents, for instance, like a lot of people do. I'm not saying that's a good experience. It's a horrible experience. And people have had this uh, experience that I had, where your parents were alive one second and gone the next. But I've been realizing how... I really don't understand life. That, that you know, life is. Uh, I didn't understand life because I didn't understand that death is part of life, that suffering is part of life, that struggle, that constant struggle or overcoming constant loss is part of life. It doesn't have to be tragic. It doesn't have to be bleak. It could even be a challenge, or it could even be in some bizarre ways a joyous thing. You know that you're going through some hard times and you're testing yourself. And you come out the other side of it, and it's a good feeling, even when you're in the midst of it. I'm sure Gary could tell you that, and, and has many times. But um, this desperate, grasping feeling I always had of hanging on to life, of hanging on to life because I felt like any moment was going to be taken away from me. The terrible irony is that that's what was taking my life away, was the grasping and the desperation. When I was in the hospital... Um, barely able to speak after the tube they put down my throat and uh, after snipping my vocal cords. I was talking like this, literally. Uh, an Indian psychiatrist came around. They assigned a psychiatrist to me because they knew about my earlier history. And he came around to talk to me. And he said, uh, when you get out of here, uh, it wasn't at this point, it wasn't if, it was when, when you get out of here and you go through all the troubles you're going to have, what do you want your life to be like? How would you like your life to be different? <clears throat> and I managed to gasp out, croak out to him. I say, if there is one thing 
that I would like not to be like anymore, that I would like not to do in my professional life, in my personal life, every moment is to be grasping at life, to grasp, to be grasping. I don't want anymore, if I can do it, and I don't know after 70 years of doing it, I don't want to be grasping at life every moment, afraid to lose it. I don't want to be afraid to fail. I don't want to be grasping and trying to rescue myself from some imagined or real um, misery or emergency or loss. I just want to let it come and let it go. This grasping is something Buddhists talk about all the time. So here I am explaining, uh, this is my absence note, I have another long climb ahead of me, and you can hear it every week. It's not going to be the same story every week. I'll talk about different subjects. You know, I wouldn't put you through this all the time. Next week, I'm going to probably talk about some event that's going on in the world. But um, that's what's going on. That's where I've been. Um, If you want to get in touch with me and express your opinion about anything you hear today, go to Fader Files, F-E-D-E-R-F-I-L-E-S dot com. And uh, I hope that I don't spend the rest of how much uh, time I have grasping away at life. And maybe we're all in the same boat. I've heard there was a secret chord that David played and it pleased the Lord. But you don't really care for music, do you? Goes like this the fourth, the fifth, the minor fall, the major lift, the baffled king composing Hallelujah, 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 Hallelujah. Your faith strong but you needed proof you saw her bathing on the roof her beauty and the moonlight overthrew you she tied you to a kitchen chair she broke your throne she cut your hair and from your lips she I know this room, I've walked this floor I used to live alone before I knew you I've seen your flag on the marble arch Love is not a victory march It's a cone and it's a broken Hallelujah 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 time you let me know what's real and going on below but now you never show it to me do you and remember when I moved
It's not somebody who sees. 